Hello, this is the Journal of American History podcast for autumn 2019. My name is Benjamin Irvin, and I am the executive editor of the Journal of American History. On today's episode, we'll discuss the use of slave labor by state governments for the development of state infrastructure and the strengthening of state power in the antebellum United States. Our guest today, Aaron R. Hall, is a presidential postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University and incoming assistant professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Aaron is now revising the manuscript for his first book. In it, he argues that in the early 19th century, U.S. lawmakers and political thinkers began to develop new narratives about the construction of an authoritative founding. In the decades before and during the Civil War, jurists and writers fought over the meanings of the Constitution and the intentions of its framers in order to achieve their own political goals, particularly as these conserved slavery. Today, though, Aaron will not be talking about his first book, but rather about his second. In this new project, Aaron examines the purchase or lease of enslaved labor by state governments for the construction of internal improvements. Aaron has just published an article based on this new line of research in the June 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. His article is entitled, Slaves of the State, Infrastructure and Governance Through Slavery in the Antebellum South. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. Interviewing Aaron today is our guest host, Susan Eva O'Donovan. Susan is an associate professor of history at the University of Memphis. Susan has authored or co-authored numerous books, articles, and documentary editions. Her first monograph, Becoming Free in the Cotton South, published by Harvard University Press in 2007, won the James A. Rawley Prize, awarded by the Organization of American Historians for the best book on the subject of race relations in the United States. Her next volume, Becoming Citizens, The Political Lives of Slaves, is under contract with Metropolitan Books. Susan is a distinguished lecturer with the OAH and recently completed a term as the Donovan University Professor at the University of Memphis. Thank you for joining us, Susan. This is my pleasure. I've been eager to talk to Aaron about his article, Slaves of the State, and I am full of my own questions. I think I'd like to start by asking Aaron to talk a little bit about his project, maybe explaining the thesis and what he wants his readers to take away from it. The article examines how antebellum states mobilized enslaved people through different configurations of public power in order to create infrastructure. The article is built through four case studies. I look at direct public slavery, that is, states owning slaves in Mississippi, Georgia, and Louisiana. I also include Virginia, which did not directly own slaves, as an instance where indirect public slavery, that is, the state mobilizing enslaved people through finance, through corporations, through a variety of different administrative configurations in order to build infrastructure. At the same time, those three states where public slavery was practiced, I show indirect public slavery, just as it was practiced in Virginia, emerged and flourished, particularly towards the late antebellum period. So that's a general picture of the article. And for people who haven't looked at it, it's just an incredibly rich, deeply researched. I think we need to get this out up front that Aaron spent a lot of time in the archives pulling together what is often very elusive information. But what I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about more is, you know, that's the big picture, that's sort of the big descriptive picture, but what's the big message here? What do you want to see your audiences taking away? And we'll elaborate on this more as our discussion unfolds, but I think it might be helpful for our audience to kind of get to that interpretive framework out in front, too. So if you can kind of try talking toward that, that would be helpful. 
Sure. So the way I approach the study of enslaved people's labor in this article is outside of the context of the plantation or a strictly private relationship with an owner, a master, or any of the other ways in which enslaved people were exploited with respect to like a specific person. Rather, I show that enslaved people served states, served the public welfare as it was constituted by empowered white governments, typically dominated by slaveholders. So that means that when states sought to develop, particularly in service of plantation economies in the lower South, they turned to slave labor and the state in ways that drew upon slavery, but deputized or mobilized those enslaved people as state actors, as state agents, as state laborers. Okay, so this is a project that really invites us to think very differently about American slavery, because a lot of us, you know, we've grown up with these images, and and I think they're probably, if my undergraduates are any indication, they're still pretty well embedded in our collective historical memory of slaves who were pretty much pinned down to plantations. So slavery was about plantations, slaves lived on plantations, slaves worked on plantations, slaves had these intimate relationships, and that's not necessarily meant in a positive way with the people who own them. But you're suggesting a really different image of slavery, slavery in which master in effect was state or, or state agencies, slaves who worked on railroads, slaves who worked on levees, built bridges, graded roads. And so you're shifting slaves out of this accustomed landscape and plopping them down in a different one. And, you know, that's a big shift. And so I'm curious in reading this, how did you come to this project? What led you down this particular road? Well, The origin story of this project begins quite early in my graduate school career. I was looking at the framing of the Confederate Constitution. I I was sort of obsessed for a moment on what it meant to found or re-found a nation state in the mid-19th century within the U.S. constitutional context. And the way in which Confederate state makers regarded slavery was not particularly consistent with either the paternalist rhetoric or any of the other very private property-centered ways in which slavery was spoken about either in other places and times or especially in the historiography. So it occurred to me that the way these people thought suggested that states might have owned slaves and there, there was at least like historically a much closer relationship between state interest, state policy in Mm -hmm. constructive ways rather than merely regulatory or Mm -hmm. punitive ways than I knew about. And so that sent me back in time to look for threads that might lead to an answer to that general question. And in fact, I found many threads. I was going to say, and that's such a typical historian move that we see something that catches our attention in the archive, and we realize, you know, that we need to trace it backwards. I mean, that's sort of what's happened with me. I keep going back and back and back and back. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So once you once you realize that this was, I mean, this caught your attention, you know, why have we got this relationship between the Confederate state and slaves, and it's, you know, it's so different from the relationship we're accustomed to between slaveholders and slaves. Where did you go 
to you. I mean, so it's one thing to have a, a question, but as, again, I keep pulling my students in here, you, but one of the things that I try to instill in them, step one is raising the question, but step two is finding sources. So I get the impression that, you know, you didn't come into this as a historian of slavery, that your origins are in constitutional history, legal history. That's a whole different archive. So tell us something about your research for this project, because it seems to me that that may have been just as surprising as your reading and rereading of the Confederate Constitution. Well, we live in the age of many digitized sources. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yes. Through a lot of text searching, I eventually found some sources in Louisiana that led me to that part of the story. That is the program of state slavery that lasted between 1834 and 1861. And it was was very incomplete. So in effect, I doubled up my dissertation research with research for this project and went to Louisiana and found an enormous archive of material about that program, all in engineers' reports and internal improvement committee reports, board of public works reports. Not the first place you would go to study the history of slavery unless you were pursuing the history of slavery in the context of state formation. Mm -hmm. And then I just looked in newspapers in other southern states for signs of such a program or kindred programs, and I found them. And it became quickly clear to me that these programs didn't exist in isolation. They were considered as alternatives to, or alternatives were considered with respect to them, about other ways of recruiting and mobilizing enslaved people to do the work of the state. And so that's why, as the article reflects, I hope, the existence of state slavery should not be seen as exceptional and outside of the other somewhat more familiar or known modes of infrastructural construction in the antebellum South. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right, because I mean, most people, when they think about studying slavery, they're going to dive into the plantation records. They're going to dive into the planter's journal. They're not going to go rummaging around through some engineer's report for the central of Georgia. But as you point out, those records can be incredibly illuminating, and they add important layers to our understanding of American slavery, because I think you make a very strong case that these were not unusual choices that, you know, how many different railroads, for instance, I mean, did you count them up? I mean, how many railroads do you think used slave labor? Well, every southern state except for perhaps Maryland, if we're we're including Maryland, used slave labor on their railroads, as far as I can tell. It's outside of the scope of, of the article, but it was the dominant mode of construction, and oftentimes operation as well. And the the number of railroads is vast because many started as small branches that then were consolidated into others. So for for the benefit of our listeners, our audience, who aren't like up on the, the latest of Southern, you know, antebellum Southern history, can you talk a little bit about why slaves? Why didn't these railroads use hired white labor. I think that was the case that happened in Maryland. So why Maryland and why not Georgia? Well, the political economies of 
the upper south and the lower south are are not the same. And Mm -hmm. in the lower south, as well as in Virginia, which until the Civil War continued to be the most populous slave state, plantation agriculture and the cycles of production, of labor, structured the rest of the labor market. Mm -hmm. And in these places, building a railroad or any other sort of infrastructural work meant the available source of manpower that would perform wage labor, wherein money is being received for labor, where those wages go, could be to a slave owner or to a self-owning person, meant that there was no ready supply of reliable, predictable, white residents, the only white population that might labor um, would be immigrants. And they do not go to the lower South um, primarily, only get to, to New Orleans. And so the labor pool in any sort of regular predictable sense had to be enslaved. Now, that was both a constraint, but also an enabling resource for state government who were slave or were populated by slaveholders themselves, because it meant that state resources accrued through taxation, through all the different ways in which a sovereign might have a capital market present and deploy finance capital could be turned to paying slaveholders for their slaves. So it created an internal economy that could offset periods when either the price of cotton fell during economic crises or during the periods of planting and harvesting when slave labor was less in demand. Yeah, you anticipated my next question because you know, we know that cotton was a giant crop, and it was a popular crop, and it was a money-making crop. And so I was curious, but you've gone a good ways to answering this question. You know, what do you do with conflicts between demand for railroad workers and demand for agriculture workers? But it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding you, but it sounds like railroad, and I'm going to kind of stick with railroad for simplicity's sake, that railroad contractors, subcontractors could access enslaved labor in periods where their labor wasn't in as such a high demand by, you know, kind of in the agricultural sector. So is that is that how you're seeing it? Yes. I think a really powerful example of that comes in the construction of the Western and Atlantic Railroad in Georgia, which is a fully state-owned railroad. And perhaps like the worst economic crisis in antebellum history occurred in the late 30s and lingered through the the early 1840s. And during that time, there was, in a sense, excess slave labor relative to the demand of planters to produce cotton at the going price. So the state, using its resources as a state, issuing warrants and essentially IOUs to planters, was able to enormously expand the construction of that railroad precisely during the time when private corporations and other more private infrastructural projects in the South could not. So the combination of slavery and the very stateness of the state 
meant that the crisis was an opportunity. That explains a lot because, you know, those of us who are kind of deep into this history know what happened in the other states to the railroad project when the financial crisis hit in the late 1830s. Most of those projects just went bankrupt. They blew up. They fell apart. I mean, Mississippi and I think Louisiana are great examples of that. But the one that stands out differently is Georgia because that railroad continues growing. And I hadn't thought about that, that it was a truly public project as opposed to a private project that had been chartered by a state. So thank you. I'm learning something here. This is great. I would just add that in Louisiana, the story is similar but different in that those relatively private railroads fail. However, the state slavery program endures, and the legislature essentially rejects the suggestion by the governor to consider selling or unwinding it and says it's too valuable and we have the power to maintain it. And so, Uh in effect, it's a different technology, but it's the same principle of the state making an exception for itself relative to like wider economic pressures. Okay. So I'm going to step back from this. I mean, because this is fascinating. We can, again, I can go on forever in this vein. I want to take it back a little bit again to, you know, something that maybe our general audience might be interested in. And I know that this happens to me all the time. Did you run across anything that just made your jaw drop that really surprised you outside of the, you know, the Confederate Constitution? We know it triggered this project. But as you began researching this project and really beginning to read through, you know, all these railroad letter documents and reports, and I suppose you got into all the canal building reports. I mean, all these ways in which they, slaves are being uh, recruited directly and indirectly into the state infrastructure project. At that stage of this, did you run across anything that just like took you totally by surprise as you were going through the archives? Something that made you want to like call up your best friend and say, "Wow." Yes, I, I mean, fairly often, even, even as <laughs> the material came familiar to me in its larger architecture, it was repeatedly stunning in its, in its ruthlessness. I recall distinctly turning to the end of a Georgia statute book for uh-huh. the year in which many enslaved people were purchased and, you know, printed there in this appendix was a list of well over 100 enslaved people that now belonged to the state. My. officially with title of the Secretary of State. And it's page after page of names, which, uh, yeah, I, mean, I had nothing more sophisticated to say other than that. It was like a, a, be, a very blunt, stunning, forceful yeah. object. Just a very, very clear kind of confirmation of what you've been finding but it also is interesting that it's pages and pages of enslaved property when we know that states own lots of property. Right, right. And so what I would say is that I essentially read that appendix or that document as a list of state workers or, you know, in a different state structural system, you might find a list of state officers in the back that have mm-hmm. a variety of, you know, public works employees. Instead, in Georgia, there is this list of new state workers who are enslaved and belong to the state. So 
So sticking with just what you, I mean, you make this very careful distinction in your article between direct public slavery. So these are the slaves that you're just describing, the slaves that are owned outright by a state and indirect public slavery. So just thinking about direct public slavery, keeping our eye on that particular group, how many slaves do you calculate were actually owned by states? And I know you can't get an exact figure on this because I know that the evidence doesn't support you know, a clear and uh, exact answer, but can you kind of give us a ballpark sense? How many people are we talking about? 600. Is that total over the, like, 1830 through 60-ish? Yeah, that might underestimate it slightly, but within the programs that I discuss, it, the aggregate number of people would be between six and 700, I think. Yeah. So equivalent to a, a good-sized Caribbean sugar plantation population. Right. So yeah. th- there is poor record-keeping and high mortality rates in certain places and times. And so it's very hard to keep track of who's new at certain junctures. But I think that's a a realistic estimate. Okay, well, that makes sense. But that also makes this other population that you bring into this accounting all the more fascinating and important. And these are, are the slaves that are involved in what you described as indirect public slavery. Let's talk about that, because I think, to me, that's what really shifts the ground out from under our feet, because, you know, 600, 700 slaves, okay, you know, they're significant, but they're not that big of a population. It's this indirect public slavery that is a much bigger population, isn't it? Is that what you're conveying in your article? Yes, absolutely. So, indirect public slaves or indirect public slavery is meant to convey that there is a large population of enslaved people that are doing the work of the state. The state does not own them. It did not purchase them in a market. However, through its resources, it is recruiting those individuals. It is mobilizing those individuals. It is controlling when and where they work. It is controlling the type of work. It is essentially setting the agenda and often managing from afar the way in which their actual like labor conditions and labor unfolds. So in Virginia, which I use as the sort of exemplar of this practice, the Board of Public Works held a controlling share of all public infrastructural companies, or all infrastructural companies, they, they were public throughout the antebellum period. And by the end, it was a two-thirds controlling share, meaning that the boards and the state's proxies were the voices of the state, of state officers, of the governor. In effect, these corporations, although having names that don't shout, this is the state of Virginia, were public entities. And uh-huh. these co- corporations, in turn, employed thousands of slaves. They owned hundreds and hundreds of slaves, and on a contractual basis or on a leasing basis, were essentially a, a major part of the hiring economy throughout the state. Yeah, and I think it's worth here reminding, the, you know, uh, kind of explaining to your readers that it wasn't just railroad work 
that these indirect slaves were engaged in. Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of projects that lease slaves were mobilized to perform? Sure. So the Virginia Board of Public Works did keep fairly good records. And as communication and transportation technology changed, you would see all manner of different infrastructural projects come into being, and they would duly report on the ways in which they were employing enslaved labor. So, well, Don't you love good record keepers? Uh, in effect, yes, although I would not want to miss them. <laughs> uh, True. Well, just, I mean, they're extremely, the way in which, I will just make a brief aside here and say that a constant throughout each of the states that I look at and each of the different projects is that there's a particular way in which administrators, infrastructural planners, engineers, and the state as a whole approaches enslaved people as laborers. And there is no gauzy paternalism. There is no sense of any of the ways in which like a buffering ideology is called into service to justify slavery in other contexts. It's very clear in a, a calculating cost-benefit sort of manner precisely the way in which labor in different configurations is being considered in terms of efficacy and efficiency. Yeah, so I mean, you're, I think you, yeah, your, oh, I was going to say that this is also what I've been seeing. I mean, it is just bare bones cost effectiveness, whichever labor pool is the cheapest, we're going to move these people around to do this work. And you're absolutely right. You know, these ideas of paternalism evaporate in these settings. You know, crews are deployed to do X and then they're picked up and they're moved off to do something else somewhere down the line. Yes. Yes. And just to conclude in response to your original question, the as transportation technology changes, there's all sorts of different projects that become important and become less important over time. River transportation rises and falls. Enormous canals are planned. Roadways are planned. Turnpikes are built. And each of these, in different ways, depending on project duration, on geography, the scale and scope of work, employ what I consider to be indirect state slaves and duly explain to the state how their resources are being expended, and seek further resources on the basis of their proper management and construction and progress. Yeah, I mean, and this is, again, this is where I found your article especially not provocative in any kind of negative sense, but really asking us to think very, very differently. Because when you start to think about all the different ways in which the public makes use of privately owned slaves to do public work, the list is near endless. I mean, even, you know, you mentioned at one point in your article about just standard road work. Can you explain to our audience how just local roads were maintained in the antebellum era? Yes. So uh, this differs state by state, but broadly, there is a type of road that is an official state project and may involve a corporation, an incorporated entity, to organize it. And states themselves may fully devote resources to, to building roads. And beneath that category of primary roads 
other roads are built and generally roads are maintained through enslaved labor, which citizens, slaveholding citizens, are essentially obligated to provide. Mm-hmm. So a local citizen takes an oath, promises to go around, correctly report on how many slaves people have and can provide to road upkeep in the given year, and then reports back to like a state officer that those roads have been maintained and people duly complied with their obligations as slaveholding citizens. Yeah, and I mean, again, you, you'll feel free to correct me because this is your area and I've only kind of circled around it. But so it's my understanding that these road service obligations are imposed on the free people, but if you own slaves, you can use your slaves to meet those obligations. But the few laws I've looked at suggest that women, enslaved women, can also be used to fulfill these obligations. And so, you know, what I found so fascinating in reading your article was to think about, and I guess this is where I do get a little bit nerdy, because I was curious, can we draw a line between public slaves whether they're indirect or direct, or direct, and private slavery, given what you found, where where does this end? Because if you you know by including not just the big projects, the railroads, the canals, the levees, the river clearing, all those giant infrastructure projects, but also these local road obligations or the local obligations to help build a you know a new courthouse or repair a jail or something. Because I think those would also fit under your uh, heading of indirect public slavery. What happens to our understanding of slavery? Because all of a sudden it looks like everybody of able-bodied age, male or female, is or is at least a prospective indirect or direct public slave. That is what I think. Or what I would respond is that the way in which we treat property often as historians of of slavery to mean a lot about the status of enslaved people leaves us missing much about state structure and Mm -hmm. how slavery fit within a distinctive form of, of a state that is not immediately apparent because there are institutions in the South that look similar to those in the North and you don't have a necessarily a, like a language or an institutional vernacular for explaining power relations, duties and obligations, rights and regulations that can attend to the, the singularity of slavery. So I would say that enslaved people as property only goes so far as to designate a set of rights, but it doesn't recognize that enslaved people are the most regulated form of property and regulated not only in terms of constraints on their own movements or their own activities, but regulated as like a wider public subject whom Mm -hmm. free white people have duties with respect to, whom Slaveholders have duties and obligations with respect to, not in terms of treatment, but in terms of like keeping up a public interest, a state interest that rests upon the institution. 
Yeah, but it also seems to, I mean, I'm not disagreeing at all with you here. This is, this is fascinating. But it also seems to, again, interrupt or maybe go so far as to subvert these more popular images of antebellum slavery. You know, these classic images, again, of people confined to plantation spaces. And what you're suggesting is that there's a whole nother plane on which enslaved Americans are circulating, and it is one that transcends plantation boundaries. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I would just note that in the way that the plantation is designed to suggest or inculcate a sense of enclosure, of complete autonomy by a slaveholder, mm-hmm. and that there is no power source outside of the master, there is no space outside of the plantation, mm-hmm. the state, or a kind of like diffuse, like a diffuse state of other slaveholders who are drawing out enslaved labor from the plantation, who are commanding and activating a type of mobility that you know defies the the rigidity of plantation boundaries is present and it's taking advantage of course of you know the necessary profitability of slavery or the necessary feature of it as an as an economic system and all it took was looking at a different set of records well it's it's, it's an entree into uh, a different kind of slave manager or slave master that oh. is more okay. honest, perhaps, about the way in which slave labor is at bottom labor. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because as you were talking about earlier, because of the nature of the political economy, you know, the demography of especially the deep south, the lower south states. This is the primary labor force. This is the vast majority of laborers, and so it stands to reason that the state appropriates that labor, directly or indirectly. But in doing so, it, we as historians, we as citizens of the 21st century, are seeing a very, very different aspect of slavery and the way it operates. I'm eager for you to finish this project. How much more work do you have to do on it? Now I'm on that subject. I have a fair amount of work to do. It depends how many questions I want to take up. There's the constructive governance piece, which uh-huh. I have a much firmer grasp of. But I, I'm also interested in, in just rethinking property as a form of governance and trying to bundle together all of the ways in which the public penetrates the ostensibly private status of of slavery, in some ways, suggesting that like the autonomy of the plantation is an illusion that requires public power. Mm-hmm. That work is speculative, and I, I need to do more. Yeah, but I think that would be just a really fascinating line of inquiry, kind of thinking about you know, kind of then exploring that relationship, you know, that border. I'm just got borders on the mind today between public and private, and, you know, is there such a thing as private? You know, if states are you know, mobilizing these enslaved people that we've thought, you know, for so long as really the exclusive private property of a master, then this whole idea of 
privacy begins to look a little shaky. So, you know, maybe we're learning that our dichotomies and our categories are not, don't really hold up too well when we start looking closely on the ground. Can you bring this back to our 21st century, maybe non-scholarly audience? You maybe reflect a little bit on, on kind of the contemporary relevance, and I can see this public-private question is dem- definitely has contemporary re- relevance, but there may be something more. So I guess the question is, is there, is there something about this study of public slaves that can help us um, navigate some of today's social political issues? Can reading about public slaves in the antebellum South help us understand something in our own lives? I I guess my aspiration would be that people, not just historians, but but Americans reflecting on the history of this country, move away from or decenter specific individual responsibility mm-hmm. in the history of slavery, and focusing on a plantation with an owner who is long dead, really doesn't help us make sense of or reckon with either the practice or especially the legacies of slavery as an institution. So I would say that by seeing slavery as something that belonged to the public, that served the white public, that was carried out through resources drawn from the white public, that built the infrastructure that everyone used Mm -hmm. reorients us towards a vision of what slavery was in which we're not trying to divvy up who is related to who, who owned or was owned by what particular person, but rather our foundational institutions, the sovereign or ostensibly sovereign entities that we live with today were essentially slaveholders organized slavery, enabled slavery for everyone. And I think you make this point toward the end of your essay that in very concrete ways, slaves made America. Right. I mean, slaves made a big chunk of it. The material base on which Mm -hmm. the country continued to develop after emancipation remained molded by the hands of enslaved people. And that material fact, I note just at the very end of the article, was recognized as a continuing responsibility of state government in a somewhat fascinating and and perverse court case. The state of West Virginia was held responsible for a share of Virginia's antebellum internal improvement debts, which were enormous, like $40 million. And in 1912, I think extending until the Great Depression, Virginia, West Virginia continued to tax uh, its population to pay off these debts incurred by the Board of uh, Public Works in Virginia, you know, half a century before. And the calculation of payment was such that because slavery was no longer legal, the proportional share of wealth between Virginia and West Virginia was altered such that West Virginia paid 30% more 
than, than it would have otherwise. I mean this because the Supreme Court, in ruling in this way, essentially defies private law. It says that what can be demanded of a state and what a state must do is different than that what it demands of its of its citizens. So, Aaron, we're starting to run out of time and probably audience patience, and I've been really leading you on with questions. So I w- before we close up, is there anything you want to add to this conversation? Is point you want to make that we haven't covered yet? Well, I would just say that one thing I've learned in researching this project thus far is that I, I really should always put away any preconceptions that I have about where the history of slavery is and where it is not. Because the more I look, the more threads that I chase, the more I just see the presence of slavery in productive, constitutive, material relations in the South and in Southern government. And I would also say that when traveling in places where slavery was the way in which things were built for a long time, it's useful to look at the road that one is on or the recreational area where one happens to be hiking and see if it is one of these places that you know, bears the, the imprint of slavery. Quite often it is. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful note to, to end on. And it's also a wonderful lesson to all of our undergraduates and graduate students who are listening to this podcast. Thank you. This has been the Journal of American History podcast for autumn 2019. Our host has been Susan Eva O'Donovan, Associate Professor at the University of Memphis. Our guest has been Aaron Hall, Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow at Cornell University. Aaron's article, Slaves of the State, Infrastructure and Governance Through Slavery in the Antebellum South, appears in the June 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you, Susan and Aaron, for being with us today. Thank you very much, Benjamin. This has been a treat. Thank you, Aaron, and best of luck finishing this project. Thank you so much, Susan. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ben, and thanks to listeners uh, for your interest.